All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 23. If you have a new school Bible with uh, a screen that is, um, uh, you can uh, tap on over there as well. And uh, I'm going to read the text and we'll get into it. Ephesians 5, oh, excuse me, 1, 15. This is why since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of His strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him his head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Let's pray before we get into the text. Our Father in heaven, um, I ask that you would speak to your people, that you would build up your people, that you would cultivate a transformative um, atmosphere and culture of prayer through this text. That those who are skeptical about prayer would be willing to try it, and that those who are serious about prayer, that you would transform their prayer life and the way they pray for people they care about. We ask that you would have your way, that your spirit would be present, that your spirit would have freedom to edit me as you see fit, to uh, add words that I haven't written down or to, to delete words that I have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So yesterday, you all have heard and seen the tragic unfolding of the events in Pittsburgh where a satanic attack was unleashed on a synagogue, killing, last report I heard, was 11 people as they worshipped um, in their house of worship. Obviously, we have, we have experience with this close to home just this, this year at uh, the Stoneman Douglas shooting in February. Um, and when these sorts of horrible things happen, um, my first impulse is to pray and to, to just bring my heart before the Lord. And uh, even if it's the simple prayer, the ancient prayer of the church, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. That, that, that's my first impulse. And, and, and maybe that's your first impulse as well. Recently, um, as, as, as these things have happened, unfortunately, way too often, once is too often, and more than once is far too often, and it's even become more common than that, there's sort of been a backlash against the idea of the, the, the cliche of thoughts and prayers, right? That, that folks will say, you know, your thoughts and prayers are useless. We need action to stop this from happening. Well, I'm, I'm not going to get into politics this morning, and my issue, my issue is not to talk about gun violence or the 
politics surrounding it other than to say that our, we do pray for and, and weep with those who weep. I, and I don't get mad either when people say that. Sometimes people get offended like, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I get it. Why people, if you don't think that prayer matters, then someone saying they're praying about a tr- tr- tragic situation sounds very flippant and very shallow. If you don't think that prayer matters, it, it, someone saying they're praying is like them saying that they're going to bring an empty squirt gun to a raging fire. So I don't get mad when people say, why would you pray? Does that even help? Or when they say that it doesn't help. Statistically, 23% or a quarter, and that, that statistic is a few years old, so it's probably more now, of people don't ever pray. They think it doesn't matter at all. And that means that there are, I'm sure, some of you who are there. Either consciously or or sort of unconsciously, you don't think that prayer makes any sort of a difference. And I have a lot of empathy for that. Because I have prayed a lot lot of things a lot of times and not seen anything happen, at least from what I could tell. And there's no objective way to say, oh yes, prayer works. So how, how... how can you objectively prove? How could I prove to you that, that my prayers matter? Well, it's like me trying to prove to you that I love my wife. How could I prove that to you? You can't open my heart. You can't open my mind. You don't know if I truly love her. What would you, what would you ask for as evidence for that? What could I provide you as evidence for that? Well, I might say I, I'm really kind to her, at least most of the time. Um, I'm patient with her uh, some of the time. I am faithful to her all of the time. Um, I try to do nice things for her. I try to care for her. And, and eventually, I think if you, you know, got to know us and you heard the stories and you saw us in action, you would say that, yes, he does not perfect, but he genuinely loves Laura. That all of these things would not be objective proof like 2 plus 2 equals 4 is mathematically, empirically, objectively, you can prove that. I can't prove to you that I love my wife. All I can do is tell you stories and I can demonstrate the ways that I show that that is true. And prayer is similar. I can't prove to you that it matters. I can't objectively say, here is a, you know, a, an equation to show you that prayer matters. But what I can tell you is I can tell you stories. I can tell you, you know, I prayed when I was a lonely, you know, 24-year-old guy just really, really ready to not be alone anymore, that I started just praying consistently and God brought this wonderful girl into my life and I ended up marrying her. Or how after uh, a couple of miscarriages and really, really wanting kids, God has now given us three beautiful kids. Or how really feeling called to be a pastor, to plant a church and how God has opened doors for that to happen. And when we decided to plant a church, how we prayed that there would actually be people who'd want to help us and how God answered that. And then how we needed money to buy stuff and fund everything and how God has provided that. I can't prove to you. And you might say, well, that's a coincidence and that's a coincidence and that might have happened anyway. But eventually, for me in my story, all of these coincidences, so-called, add up to a really strong case that my prayers matter because God is real and he hears them and he responds to them. So I think there's probably some of you who are skeptical about prayer, but I think there's a lot more of you who are serious about it. Like you're serious about wanting 
to have an effective, meaningful life of prayer. If you're skeptical, I just want to challenge you just to just try it. To just try it and, and, and try to talk to God and say, God, I'm not sure if I even believe you're real. But if you are, would you help me to see that? I know a lot of people have prayed that. And you know what happens? I got to warn you. He might just show you. Um, and he might just answer. If you're serious about prayer, then I think that the text of Scripture we're going to look at this morning could tr totally transform your life of prayer. I think most of you, like me, think a vibrant life of prayer is critically important. And you want to pray effectively for people you care about. The, the, the $5 word is intercede, right? Pray for another person. Uh, and, but, but if you're honest, even if you're serious about prayer, if you believe in prayer and you've seen answers to prayer, there is still part of you that is cynical. There is still a little part of you that's skeptical because you have prayed like me for lots of things, lots of times, and seen what, from what you can tell, nothing happened. Or the opposite of what you've prayed for happened. You probably don't want to feel this way, but like this is church, so let's just be honest. We all feel that way sometimes. You're also like me, you're busy. And you're probably not as disciplined as you want to be. And so even though you do think prayer is important, you don't always have time to pray and pray consistently. And prayer kind of gets pushed to the edges or it's like a quick little thing you may do. It doesn't have to be this way. Um, in the text here in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, I think we're going to see a pattern of prayer that if it really were to root itself in your heart, and if it really were to root itself in this new church, that it could end up being something really special in your life and to make this a very special kind of church family. It, prayer touches on every aspect of why we're here in the first place as a church. We are here to help people find life like God intended because Jesus has promised and offered abundant life. John 10, 10. I have come so they may have life and have it in abundance. And we believe that by bringing people to God and bringing people together through the cross of Jesus Christ, that we can help them and to help ourselves experience that abundant life. The Bible teaches when we're brought to God in wholehearted worship, through the cross, when we're brought together in authentic community, and when we're sent out on a joyful mission and purpose in the world, we begin to experience that life that Jesus offers to us. And prayer is the heartbeat of that wholehearted worship. Prayer is the glue of authentic community, and prayer is the power of joyful mission. So all that we talk about, all that we do, is meaningless without a healthy and vibrant prayer culture in our lives and in this church. And Paul the Apostle, he knew that. Uh, he was a missionary, and he did what we're doing. He went into cities, and he planted new churches. He would go, and he would go, and he would tell people about Jesus, and he would say that they were sinners who had sinned against God, and that because of that, they were dead in their sin, and they were spiritually dead currently, they would die physically, and someday they would die eternally. And that they couldn't fix it. They couldn't work their way out of it. They couldn't rebuild their own lives. That they couldn't help themselves. But God helped them. God stepped in and offered to forgive them and to heal them and restore them by sending his son Jesus to die 
in their place to be buried and raised from the dead. And if they would turn from their sin and they would trust in Jesus that God would forgive them, he would heal them, he would restore them, and he would give them new life. And those people would hear this message and they would become Christians as they turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. Just like you could today, if you've never done that, to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ and to be given new life. And these, these Christians would get together in these groups and they called this group a, an ecclesia, a, a gathering, an assembly, or as we say today, a church. Paul went into the lecture hall of Tyrannus in the city of Ephesus and he, he rented it out for two years, sort of like we're in partnership with Trinity Church here. We've rented this facility and we partnered with them to, to have a space where we set up to meet and worship and hear about Jesus. Paul did the same thing. And he helped people learn about Jesus. And then he went on the next phase of the journey God had him on, which included going to prison for preaching the truth and teaching people about Jesus. And while he's there in Rome, appealing to the highest court in the land, he is under house arrest and he's writing letters to people he loves. And he writes this letter to the church of Ephesus. And he opened the letter we saw last week in 1, 1 through 14 with this explosion of praise. This one long sentence that's 11 verses long. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in, here in verse 15 through 23, it's another single sentence. This whole chapter is basically two long run-on sentences. An explosion of praise and then an explosion of prayer. And so as we look at this, this text, 1, through 15, 1 15 through 22, 23, we're going to see six habits of transformative prayer that we're going to use the acronym UNITED, which is the, the series title, to, to unpack six habits of effective prayer contrasted with six habits of ineffective prayer. Number one, effective prayer is up-to-date instead of uninformed. Effective prayer is up-to-date instead of uninformed. Look at verse 15. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. He says, I've heard about your faith and I've heard about your love. He's aware of the spiritual condition of these people that he's writing to. He knows where they're at spiritually. It's really hard to pray for people if we don't know what's really going on in their life if we don't really know spiritually where they're at, where, what's their walk with Jesus look like if they are a believer? Well, maybe, maybe what you need to do is you need to send a text or you need to make a call, you need to make an appointment for, for coffee or for lunch or for breakfast to get to know how this person you say you love and you want to pray for, how are they doing spiritually? You know, for, for physical health, we go to the doctor, we you know, we, we get checkups. We, they take our blood pressure and they, they do blood work and they do all these things to see how we're doing physically. And sometimes it's easy to put that sort of checkup off spiritually. And the way the Bible is designed is not for you to have to come to a professional, a religious professional to get your spiritual checkup done. He has given the body of Christ all that it needs to help each other be, a, be, be growing in spiritual health. And you may be the the person that that person needs. And you need to reach out and you need to really find out how they're doing spiritually. Not just the, you know, small talk is good, but it's called small talk for a reason because it doesn't matter that much. At some point, you got to get to the big stuff. How are they really doing? 
It's up to date instead of uninformed. Second, it's nonstop instead of now and then. Look at verse 16. I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Nonstop doesn't mean that Paul, every moment of every day, just consciously was praying for the Ephesians. That's not what it means. When he says, I pray, never stop praying, what he means is that at his customary times of prayer, probably three times a day, which was a a Jewish custom, morning, noon, and night, he would remember to pray for them. So his, his prayer was, it had a pattern, it had a plan, it had a consistency, and it had, he remembered to pray for them. We're all busy, but we're all able to make time for what we really prioritize. So I'm busy, but if I want to watch four episodes of The Office on Netflix, I make time to do that. And you're busy, but if you want 37 minutes of extra sleep, you make time to do that. We're all busy, but if we think our kids playing soccer is important, we make sure they get there. We're all busy, but if we think Bible study is important, we make it a point to be there. And if prayer is really important, we need to make it a priority. We need to have a plan. We need to have a schedule. We need to have a way to make sure that we are praying consistently and then remembering some sort of system to remember how and who we're praying for. And, and I'm not, like, I'm not great at this. I am really consistent at being inconsistent. I, I'm not coming at this at, like, like beating, beating on the pulpit, like, you all stink, get better. I'm saying, we all stink, let's all get better together. Over the years, I've, I've shared at different points, th- there have been a number of, of just simple tools I've used to help me remember to pray. In, in the past, I've used index cards, and I still have them. Sometimes I use them, sometimes I don't. Um, and I, I have an index card for myself, an index card for Laura, an index card for our kids. And I, pr- I put little just bullet points on the back that I'm praying for. And there have been seasons where I pray through those consistently and pray every day. Other seasons I, I try to remember to pray in a, different, in a different way. I use a different tool. Those index cards, they've become sort of a, a, a journal and a, and a travel log of my journey of faith. And so I first started using them, I think, in 2009. And at the time, Laura got pregnant for the first time, and so I had a card that said baby. Well, then she had a miscarriage. And so, and then I, then I crossed out baby, and I wrote Adeline. And then I crossed, I didn't cross out Adeline, she was still on there. Um, but then I wrote Judson, and then I wrote Olivia. And, and so this, and then I see it's all these different kinds of pens and pencils that I've used over, you know, almost a decade of praying through these index cards. Now, currently what I do is I have an alarm set at the time for the birthday of all the members of our immediate family. So at 9.19 a.m., my alarm goes off. Pray for Laura. It's her birthday September 19th. One of the things a lot of us have been doing is every day at 10.02, whether it's a.m. or p.m., we pray Luke 10.2, that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers for his harvest. It doesn't matter what it is, but you need to have some kind of plan to pray consistently and pray nonstop. Not that you don't ever take a breath and think about something else, but that you are consistently and persistently prevailing before the Lord in prayer for people that you love. And notice he says, I pray and I never stop giving thanks. Usually what we pray about are we pray about problems. But when was the last time you didn't ask God for anything and you just told him thank you for everything you could think of? Just like 
I'm going to pray. There's, I'm not doing this currently. Um, maybe I need to start again. But there's been seasons where I would list 10 things I was thankful for before I asked God for a single thing. And sometimes if I try not to do the same things every day, sometimes I, I start thanking him for things that are, are like not that important in the grand scheme of things, but they're still a blessing, and I still should say thank you. Nonstop instead of now and then. Number three, intentional instead of incidental. Verse 17, I pray that the Lord of our God, excuse me, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. This is actually a statement of purpose. It's part of one sentence. It's a subordinate clause in the original language. If you're a grammar person, you know what that means. If not, don't worry about it. But basically what Paul is saying is that he has a purpose in his prayer. He is not just praying incidentally based on how something may be going in the person's life. He has a purpose, he has a plan, he has a strategy, and he has a goal. He has something he wants to see happen in the lives of the people he's praying for. He doesn't pray reactively, he prays proactively. He, ha- he puts things in place and he, he, he remembers to pray and then he prays with a very specific purpose with a very specific goal. He wants these people to look like Jesus. He wants them to know the fullness of the Spirit of God and the fullness of what God has given them in Jesus Christ. He wants them to grow up into the faith that they call their own. Do you you have a plan? Do 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 you have a purpose in prayer or do you just sort of pray incidentally? Oh, so and so has this going on. We need to pray for that. And it's sort of like this it's just whatever is happening, it's reactive all the time. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to respond to what's happening in the lives of people we care about. Like, that's important. But the, 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 the urgent can quickly tyrannize the most important. There, there's a, a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Anyone ever read it? And he talks about that, that the most important things in, in life and, and in business or whatever it is, typically are the least urgent and you don't get around to doing them unless you have a plan so you're praying for all sorts of things and but are you praying for what's most important and this is easier to do when you're informed you're up to date about how that person is really doing you're praying for your kids are you praying for their conversion are you praying for the fruit of the spirit to be evident in their life are you praying for them to look like jesus to to follow him to be a person who sold out or are you just praying for kind of the, the, the day-to-day things and reacting to those things? It's both. Intentional instead of incidental. Number four, theological instead of trivial. One seventeen through 19. I already read verse 17, so I'll start in 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know What is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? Now, don't get scared by the word theological. A lot of times it's like eyes glaze over. That's like, you know, dry, you know, lifeless sort of like doctrine not, not like real spiritual stuff. No, the theological just means what does the Bible teach about who God is? And there's nothing more life-giving and more vibrant than that. 
And this passage shows in verse 17 that God is a trinity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, may He give you the Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I talked about last week, there was a survey that was commissioned recently. 78% of American Christians don't actually believe in the Trinity. And so I'm going to probably talk about this a lot because Ephesians is a Trinitarian book. This is a Trinitarian letter that Paul writes. This is closely tied to the previous one, the intention of your prayer. Why are you praying? What is your purpose? Paul's purpose when he prays is not just for the health or the the sort of general well-being of the people he loves. It's not just that God would protect them, that God would keep them safe. It's not just that they would be happy and healthy. He has a fundamentally spiritual aim for the people he prays for. The simple prayer that I pray when my alarm goes off, because a lot of times I'm in the middle of stuff, and, and, you know, I don't have like all day, you know, for that moment. But what I'll pray is I will pray, fill Laura or whoever I'm praying for, Adeline Judson, Olivia, fill Laura with your spirit so she would know you and love you and trust you and follow you wherever you lead. And then I, go, I pray numbers, the blessing, the benediction of numbers six, bless her and keep her, make your face to shine upon her, be gracious to her and give her peace. Too often, though, our prayers are really trivial. Don't get me wrong. God cares about the little stuff. God does. He cares about the little stuff. But it's called little stuff for a reason. Because God cares about the big stuff a lot more. And in God's vision, he cares a whole lot more about your spiritual health and the people you care about spiritual health than their physical health. He cares more about their spiritual sight than their physical sight. He cares a lot more about their treasure in heaven than their checking account. He cares more about protecting their soul than protecting their body. God wants to open the eyes of his children to what is already theirs in Christ. Gordon Fee, who is a wonderful commentator, wrote a book on the Holy Spirit in the letters of Paul, a commentary. It's one of my one of my go to resources called God's Empowering Presence. And he says that the prayer is for this indwelling spirit whom they have already received to give them further wisdom and revelation. The emphasis is not on receiving the Spirit, but on receiving the resident spirits or realizing the resident spirits' gifts. It's becoming activated and aware to what you already have. So I don't know, anyone here use Venmo? So sometimes people Venmo, uh, you know, we'll use Venmo to transfer money. And, um, you know, when we're... so. Laura, when she's paying bills, she's doing stuff, and she handles all that for us, praise God, that um, I don't have to do that. And she'll say, okay, Danny, we have X dollars left for X amount of time, you know, until your next paycheck or whatever. And every once in a while, if money's a little extra tight, you know, maybe we had an extra bill or something come in, she will say, by the way, do you happen to have any money in your Venmo? Well, recently this happened, and I opened my Venmo app, and there under your account thing, it says, and I have $752.58 that I had forgotten was in my Venmo account. All I had to do was tap transfer to get it into our main checking account. And Laura's like, how did you, I don't know, I just forgot it was there. 
God has way more than $700 worth of spirit-filled blessing for you. And you're sitting there and you're pinching spiritual pennies. When he has a, an ocean of blessing, an ocean of spiritual power, an ocean of grace and love, and you are not tapping into it. You're living on the dregs of some sort of spiritual inspiration you somehow got recently. Maybe it was a sermon you heard or something you read or whatever, and you're kind of trying to hold on to that when God is present and able to give you far more than you can ask or imagine. And what Paul wants is for us to be aware. He wants to remind us, hey, you have another account that's got a lot left in there that you're not tapping into. What is in there? Look at verse 18 and 19. Hope Riches and power. Number one, the hope of his calling. His calling is not, so often we say someone who's like a vocational pastor, they have a calling. But actually the Bible almost never talks about calling in that way. He talks about calling as, the, as what God does for everyone he calls his child. He calls them and he calls them by name and he loves them. And if you're his child, he loves you and you are his and he has you and you have nothing but hope in front of you. We live in a moment of such profound fear and anxiety. And we of all people should be people of hope. That it doesn't matter what happens on November 6th and who takes, you know, if the Republicans keep the Senate or the Democrats take the Senate or, you know, what... That stuff matters in the short term, but we have a hope that is way, way bigger and longer term than that. Number two, the riches of his inheritance in the saints. In, in earlier in ver verses 13 and 14, it talks about the inheritance we received from God. But here, what's really shocking is that the inheritance is not ours, but God's. His inheritance is you. You are his inheritance. He is waiting and is thrilled that he gets you forever. That's what, he's, that's what he's excited about. His inheritance are the saints, the beloved, the children that he has chosen and brought to himself through his son, Jesus. This is what God sees as valuable. You, his church. Number three, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe in verse 19. And this moves us into the fifth part of a pattern of prevailing prayer, exalting Christ instead of egocentric. The power of God is shown on behalf of Christ. He exercised his power, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. President, king, supreme ruler, CEO, all of those are subjected under his feet, and he appointed him, Christ, as head over everything for the church. So Jesus is in charge of the universe right now, and he is exercising his power on your behalf as his church which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So Paul has moved here from just petition, just asking God for stuff, from you know checking things off on his spiritual shopping list to just exploding in praise for what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
Our prayer sometimes, I think, has so little power because it is so egocentric. It's so self-centered. It is so just about us. It's about what I need, what I feel, what I'm going through, what my family. And it's so us-focused. It has no spiritual power because it's not really what God is interested in. God isn't really interested in us just being focused on ourselves. He has designed us for something far bigger. Last week, I talked about this article in Psychology Today called It's Not About, Not All About You. Um, and, and there's been clinical studies that have shown that the experience of awe, A-W-E, is actually uh, contributes to less anxiety and a more healthy sense of, of personal well-being. We're designed to be thunderstruck by something bigger than ourselves. We're not designed to just live these tiny little lives. We're not designed to just be caught up in our own tiny little story. We are a small subplot in a grand narrative. We were designed to be filled with awe at the transcendent triune God, to bless the Lord for wholehearted worship, to, to lose ourselves in something greater than ourselves. Let me ask you, when was the last time your time of prayer went from being a personal shopping list to a moment of profound worship in the presence of God? When was the last time you buried your face in the carpet or you buried your face in your hands or you, you just couldn't get low enough before the presence of God because of who he is and what he's done? Well, I'm not beating you down again because I'm I too few these times for me are too few, and they're too far between. And, and I mean, honestly, my prayer life's pretty mediocre. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not like some paragon of, you know, praying power. But my solace is this, that Jesus is my great high priest, and he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. And where my mediocrity abounded, his excellence and his intercession and his majesty abounded so much more. And when I recognize that, I begin to want to pray. I begin to want to experience his presence. And it makes me want more than just for him to fill my egocentric shopping cart. And I want this for you. I want this for my family. I want this for us. Number six. Declared instead of detached. And this is the whole passage. So obviously we know about this prayer because Paul told them about this prayer. Now I know that Jesus says, when you pray, go in your room, lock the door, pray in secret. Don't let anyone know you're praying. But what he's addressing there is not telling people you're praying per se, but telling people you're praying and standing and grandstanding with some sort of false spiritual bravado so that people will think you're spiritual. It's not a sin to tell other people you're praying for them because Paul does it. He does it all the time. He tells people he's praying for them all the time. But what he does is he doesn't just tell them that he's praying. He tells them what he's praying. So, so often we're gonna be like, hey man, I've been praying for you. How's, you know, I've been praying for you. And I do this too. Or I, hey, I'll pray for you. And by the way, that's probably the least kept promise Christians make to one another, right? You pray, I, hey, I'll pray for you. And you see him, I was like, oh, Lord, let, let pray to him really quick. Hey, I pr I've been praying for you, man. But he doesn't just tell them that he's praying. He tells them what he's praying. 
I wonder what would happen if we started talking to each other that way. Not like weird, like, but like, hey, I'm praying. You know what? I'm really praying that you'll, you'll have a deep sense. And even that sounds kind of weird, right? We're just so not used to having these sorts of conversations. May we be the type of community where this, this sort of thing isn't weird, where we're like, hey, I'm really praying that you'll be able to really see that, all that, that God loves you and that Jesus, that all that he offers to you in Jesus and that you, I'm praying that that, that will help you um, have, have more joy this week in your life. And just talk about weather, talk about work, but let's talk about the wonder of the gospel as well. There's a, a saint in the ancient church named St. Augustine. And uh, they actually named a city after him here in Florida, St. Augustine. But um, it was probably pronounced Augustine. And um, when he was a teenager, he was living in Carthage, which is in North Africa, part of the Roman, Roman Empire. And uh, his mom was a Christian and he was not. He was one of the smartest people you know, who ever lived. He was always like the smartest guy in the room. He was too smart for his own good. He wanted nothing to do with Christianity. But his mom, his mom prayed for him nonstop, like Paul talks about here. When he's 16, she prays that he wouldn't sail away, that he wouldn't leave Carthage. And the next thing she knows, he leaves. And so God... He, he, God told her, not just didn't answer her prayer, he told her, no, no, I'm not going to prevent your son from leaving. And for years, for a decade plus, decade and a half, her, his mother, Monica, prays for him and prays for him and nothing's happening and nothing's happening. And then one day, Augustine hears a child reading and he, the Spirit of God somehow uses that moment and he gets into the scripture and his life is transformed by the gospel. And he says that, that his mom who'd been praying for him all those years, nonstop prayer, united prayer, that, that she was praying for him and interceding for him. And it looked like nothing was happening. It looked like God wasn't answering. And it looked like God was saying no. It looked like God had rejected her prayer. But God was working. And at the bright time, Augustine was converted and he became one of the most important Bible teachers and theologians the church has ever seen. He wrote a little book called Confessions. It's a book where he basically just writes prayers to God. And he said, what did she beg of you? He's talking to God about his mom. My God, with all those tears, if not that you would prevent me from sailing away from Carthage, but you did not do as she asked. Instead, in the depth of your wisdom, you granted the wish that was closest to her heart. For she saw that you had granted her far more than she used to ask in her tearful prayers. You converted me to yourself so that I would no longer place any hope in this world, but I stood firmly upon the rule of faith. And you turned her sadness into rejoicing, into joy far fuller than her dearest wish, far sweeter and more chaste than any she had hoped to find. Will you commit to being united in prayer for those you love? Will you, be, will you commit to be united in prayer for fellow members of your church family? Will you commit to up-to-date, non-stop, intentional, theological, exaltational, declared prayer instead of 
uninformed, now and then, incidental, trivial, egocentric, and detached prayer? Will you allow God to transform the way that you pray? If you're skeptical, will you at least give it a try? On your card that I mentioned earlier, um, there's some ways to take some next steps. And each week, um, you know, there's, there's spots there if you want to get connected to a Bible study, you want to get connected to serving in ministry. Um, you know, like if you want to help, I, I had a pastor who used to say this, and, and I'm going to steal what he said. If you have a brain and a finger, you can help us do slides on Sunday morning. That's actually something that we're always kind of scrambling to make sure someone does. I did them this morning, and that's why they were terrible and they were off the whole time. So if you don't want that to happen anymore, you can be a part of the solution. Um, if you, um, you're interested in the faith, but you're not quite sure, you have questions, you can check, I want more information about becoming a Christian. That's not signing your life away. That's just saying, hey, I want to talk. But what I really want to point you to is that top one. Will you commit to being united? Will you commit to letting the scripture shape your prayer life? And if so, maybe there's some people or a person or a group of people that you want to commit to pray for. Will you just check that off, write the name in, and we'd love to be able to just walk with you and encourage you in that as you make that commitment. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would shape and that you would create a culture of this type of prayer in our lives and in this church. Thank you that where our mediocre prayer abounded, your excellence and majesty, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, abounded. And so it's not all dependent on us, but that makes us want to pray. We want to experience your presence. We want to have a vibrant and effective and fruitful life of prayer. So I pray you would help us to have wisdom as to how to do that, realistically how to implement those sorts of practices in our lives. We just ask for your grace to pervade those decisions and those intentions that we would pray as you would have us pray. In Jesus' name, amen.